you couldn't draw a line at any point in that sequence and say, okay, anyone past this line is a scientist. And so the volunteers really are welcome to, to cross over. So just by participating, I think people are becoming scientists or doing science. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. We're living in the age of big data. Scientists can collect and store more information than ever before. So how can they manage it all? That's where citizen science comes in. Members of the public can log into the Zooniverse, the world's largest citizen science platform, and do the hard work of sorting through the data. Whether that's searching for alien planets or spotting penguins, the project's co-founder Chris Lintot says the public aren't just helping out but doing real science. In his new book, The Crowd and the Cosmos, Chris explains how, in just a few minutes in your lunch break, you can contribute to fields from astronomy to zoology. So first of all, can you please just describe your Zooniverse project? Sure. Zooniverse started out as uh, an answer to a very simple problem, which is that we had too many galaxies, uh, which is something that I think a lot of people face in the 21st century. (laughs) Um, We needed to sort the galaxies out by shape and had discovered, mostly by experiment, that PhD students weren't willing to look at more than about 50,000 galaxies themselves. (laughs) And so in desperation, we asked the public for help. Uh, way back in 2007, and got this enormous reaction. So Zooniverse is a platform that lets researchers of all kinds ask uh, for help with their data. And we've had people count penguins and transcribe ancient papyri, sort through old weather records, discover galaxies, look for planets, and all sorts of other things um, in what we tend to call citizen science. So what is the value of getting the public involved in um, doing these sorts of tasks? Well, that's an interesting question because we changed our mind about that over the course of uh, the project. So to begin with, I think we thought the value was that we simply couldn't sort through the volume of data that we had without the help of the public. So we had a million galaxies. um, We just couldn't look at all of them ourselves. Uh, The TESS satellite, NASA's latest planet hunter, Uh, observes 30,000 stars in great detail every month, we can't possibly sit and go through all of that data ourselves. So partly the value is that by collaborating with large numbers of the the public, we're actually able to do science that we can't do any other way, that we we can get through these large data sets. But over time, we realise that's only half the point. When you invite people when you invite anyone to come and look at your data, uh, they find things that are of interest to them that maybe you didn't even dream of looking at. And so there are lots of cases where the volunteers on the projects have become interested in particular objects or type of objects, and they've prodded us uh, to be interested in those objects too. So the kind of science we do has changed because we've had the public involved. Uh, a nice example of that is a set of small, round, green galaxies called the Galaxy Zoo Peas by volunteers because they're small, round, and green. Uh, and these things have been in the background of images that astronomers have been using since at least the 1950s. But no one had looked at them. And so no one had realised that they were unusual. It was only when the Galaxy Zoo volunteers got together and started looking at the properties of these galaxies that we realised that they were 
pretty special indeed. They're the most efficient factories of stars in the local universe. So these are small galaxies that, for reasons we don't quite understand, have decided to turn all their gas into stars right now. Um, and why they're doing that and how they're doing that and how they're affecting their environments are things that we desperately want to know. But we didn't even know that those questions were worth asking until the volunteers sent us an email and started talking about these strange P galaxies. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of value to the scientists um, from getting the public involved. But what would you say is the value to the public of getting involved with science? Well, we know that lots of our volunteers find it fun. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of inspiring, uh, hopefully, to be part of the scientific adventure. You know, I'm used to giving talks or presenting TV programs to an audience who have come to learn about science. But it's a very different experience to be doing some yourself. And hopefully, uh, one of the things these projects do is break down the boundary between those of us who are lucky enough to get to do science for a living uh, and everyone else who might be interested, might be a fan of science, but uh, who who doesn't normally get to play. I, it, it's a bit like, I think, um, I'm a football fan and I've spent years watching uh, my team play, despite the revelation at about the age of seven that I was never going to be good enough to get on the pitch. But suddenly this is like finding a way to, to take part in a match. So, so I think partly it's collaborative like that. There are other benefits as well. I think um, a, something like 10% of volunteers in the original Galaxy Zoo told us that they liked taking part in the project because they liked having space to think about the vastness of the universe. And so I, I think <laughs> for, for many people, that sense of spending a little bit of time, particularly in the astronomical projects uh, in the universe, is extremely uh, enticing. We see that as well with projects like Penguin Watch, where people are counting penguins in the Antarctic. Uh, there's something nice about visiting the Antarctic for a few minutes every day and helping out there. Um, but most people just want to help. So we know from surveys and from talking to volunteers that mostly people are doing this out of altruism, out of wanting to help scientists and help, uh, I guess, all of us progress with understanding the universe. Uh, and I think that's kind of interesting. We're used to talking about people on the internet or people on the web or crowds on the web uh, as being a negative thing. You, know, you think of online bullying and, and, and so on. And I, I wouldn't dismiss the importance of those things, but this is a crowd on the internet who are committed to doing good uh, and to, to helping explore the universe. And I find that kind of inspiring. So, the idea of citizen science, it, it feels like quite a new idea, you know, getting, as you say, crowds on the internet to come and altruistically help scientists out with projects. But um, it's actually got a fairly long history, hasn't it? So could you please just get, take us on a, a brief tour of the history of citizen science? Sure. This has been one of the most fun parts of, of writing the book and thinking about citizen science in this way is, that it, is the ability to dig a bit deeper. So I knew that there was a long astronomical history. Things, I, There are surveys of stars, uh, of, of stellar behaviour going back to the, about the early 19th century by organised groups of amateurs. And so when I thought about historical citizen science, that that's what I had in my head. It actually um, goes back further than that. There's a great story of Edmund Hanley, uh, who was an astronomer here in Oxford, uh, obviously the man for whom the comet, comet was named, um, who in 1715 wanted to try and track 
the uh, path of an eclipse, a total solar eclipse, which was crossing Britain. And so he realized he couldn't cover the whole ground himself. So he wrote to the professors of astronomy at Oxford and Cambridge to ask them to make observations. Um, and he also issued a map, which you could have bought for a penny, uh, which showed the likely path and asked uh, anyone who read it to make detailed timings of the start and the middle and the end of the eclipse and send them into Halley. Now, um, in Oxford, it was a good job he did that because in Oxford, it was cloudy. Uh, in Cambridge, the, the observatory records show that uh, it was clear the eclipse was observed, but the professor there was uh, he says, oppressed by too much company. And so I think that means a whole bunch of people turned up and wanted to talk to him. So he didn't get to take detailed measurements. Um, and Halley ended up getting about 200 different um, submissions from all over the country from people who'd taken detailed measurements. And so that formed the basis of a refined model of the solar system. So I think that's the oldest instance of scientific crowdsourcing. But you can go back through uh, 19th century weather records, the people who catalogue bird life in great detail, particularly in North America and, and, and here in the UK as well, um, and, and find that there's this old tradition of people putting some of their spare time into providing scientific data. And I think what's really happened is that that form of science that involves all sorts of people and people donating their time um, goes right the way back. And, and it's obscured slightly by the 20th century, which is, of course, the time when universities took over science, where it became the became normal for you to sit in a building like the one I'm in now in a big research laboratory uh, and get paid to do science. We're actually, with this sort of modern citizen science, going back to the roots of scientific discovery uh, as something in which anyone can play a part. Yeah. And um, one of my uh, favourite stories of the history of citizen science from your book, The Crayon the Cosmos, um, it was not actually one of the more successful ones. It was the story of Benjamin Robbins trying oh, to study ballistics. This story. Yes, yes, there's Paul Benjamin Robbins, who he, this, I, I feel for him slightly. He had a brilliant uh, start to his career and got recognised by the Royal Society and so on, and then um, didn't get a, a job he wanted as professor of ballistics. But he was trying to understand how rockets uh, work, actually how they move, and 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 whether they, you know, how how high in the above the ground they can get. He's interested in them because they might be weapons. But there's a there's a great firework display in Green Park in London in 1749, um, and so he decides to study this and he writes these incredibly detailed instructions, which he publishes in the Gentleman's Magazine, which was well read at the time. And he asks everyone from around London to look towards Green Park and and measure how high the fireworks appear in the sky from their location, um, and, and then to send them in. And he hopes from, from this information to be able to work out um, what's going on. Well, the, fire, the firework display was, was a great success. And the, the rest of the event was less so. I think the tent that they built as the centerpiece of the uh, celebrations burnt down. Robbins didn't make any observations himself, and no one, well, almost no one, uh, sent in observations apart from one Welshman who'd been observing <laughs> from Abergavenny, uh, who said that he could see the fireworks clearly and complained about the cost uh, <laughs> of such a display in London that could be seen from what 150 miles away. So, <laughs> so not not a successful example of crowdsourcing. But there's some lessons in there. I, I, I went back. I went to the Royal Society, and they hand 
the uh, 18th century gentleman's magazine and I pulled it down and you can read the instructions mm. from Robbins. And, and there's a couple of pages about exactly what your servants need to do and how <laughs> to measure the height of the rocket. You have to uh, see a firework next to, say, a church tower a few miles away. And then the next day you have to go out with a sextant and measure the height of the tower uh, and then do some simple calculations. And, and he's describing all of this in, I don't know, the equivalent of... Um, something like The Spectator or something, you know, <laughs> or, or The Sunday Times magazine or something. Um, so it's not utterly surprising that Robbins didn't succeed, but I, I think he gets credit for trying. Yeah, so we can learn from that that maybe uh, simpler instructions are better in the case. <laughs> Simple instructions, and if if you're asking people to rely on their servants to make the measurements, then you, <laughs> you've probably got a problem. Maybe that was true in the 18th century too. <laughs> so in a lot of these uh, historical cases, there was, there was a bit of discussion about um, who was doing the, the real science, as it were, so whether members of the public who are gathering data are actually doing science or whether that's the... Um, uh, that the people who are gathering all the data together and uh, making a, a yeah, analysis I, of them. Yeah, I talked about this in the book in the context of I, I got to learn a lot about the history of sort of weather forecasting and meteorology. Uh, and there's a, some really nice examples of this uh, with some of the early um, observers who went up in hot air balloons, which were, were really dramatic. My favourite illustration in the book is this amazing picture of um, a scientist called Glacier uh, who was associated with the Royal Observatory in Greenwich and his pilot, Henry Coxwell, who were up in one of these balloons above the clouds. And uh, Glacier is basically unconscious in the basket while Coxwell is climbing up into the, the rigging to rescue the balloon and save the scientific mission and, and indeed both of the men. Uh, but in that context, when Glacier writes about what happened, it's very clear that he's the scientist and that Coxwell is just the pilot. <laughs> Whereas actually, I think these days you talk about them both being on, on the adventure together. So, so this echoes down down the centuries you can see it in things like well i meant i mentioned greenwich the the royal observatory used to employ what were known as calculators who were were people uh originally mostly women who were who had the technical skills uh, to do complex mathematical uh calculations but not the formal educational background to um write up the, the, the results as astronomical results. So the Greenwich calculators, um, I think we could argue, were as much um, con contributors to the science as the Astronomer Royal, who ran the observatory at the time, but they weren't giving credit for, for much of that. Um, that comes up today because one of the criticisms of, of the Zooniverse uh, that people make is that um, it's sort of one directional, that the real science, whatever that is, is being done by me and my teams here. Um, and that all we're asking people to do is to click through uh, and classify. And so it, it can be seen as sort of drudge work. And there are a couple of arguments there. One is that it's it's actually a lot of fun. I, hap I would rather happy happily sit and classify galaxies most mornings instead of doing, you know, the grand paperwork that I have to do a lot of the time. But the, but the second thing is that I don't think you could draw a boundary on who's doing science and who isn't. There's this great enterprise of trying to increase our knowledge of the universe. And it takes all sorts of people, from people who build cameras uh, to people who ran the surveys that took the data that we're using, um, to the to computer programmers who wrote the programs that turn that data into images that are worth looking at through to, to people who look at the images and then the theorists who, whose theories we're testing. So I, 
I think you couldn't draw a line at any point in that sequence and say, okay, anyone past this line is a scientist. And so the volunteers really are welcome to, to cross over. Some, um, just so just by participating, I think people are becoming scientists or doing science. Um, some of them go on and, and do much more than just click. So one of the most surprising things has been watching people uh, not only discover unusual objects, but um, become more advanced scientists themselves. This has happened particularly in a project called Planet Hunters, where we've been looking and finding planets around stars other than the sun using data from a couple of NASA satellites. And Planet Hunters has sim simply amazed me. I thought that Planet Hunters would fail. For starters, it it's a project that asks you not to look at a beautiful picture of a galaxy, but it asks you to look at a graph uh, and have fun doing that because uh, you're looking at data. Uh, and secondly, um, we're looking for for the repeating pattern that indicates a, a position of a planet. Um, and that's something computers are pretty good at. But we found that because there's noise in the data, because stars are actually quite complex and because planets can have quite subtle signals, we've been able to find planets. But some of the volunteers on Planet Hunters have over the years gone from people who came in and just started clicking and classifying to people capable of, of running their own research projects and, and writing their own scientific papers. Uh, and, and so that's been good to see. But I couldn't tell you at any point in that their careers as citizen science, scientists, at which point they became a proper scientist. I think you're a proper scientist if you've got questions to ask about the universe and uh, if you do something about that, like participating in one of our projects. Right. So I, you know, I don't have a PhD, I don't work in a university, so I could go on the Zooniverse website or, you know, any of our listeners could go on the Zooniverse website, take part in a project and justifiably call myself science. a science. Yeah, absolutely. You are, we are all uh, capable of being scientists. We're, science is about two things. It's sort of pattern recognition, spotting that something is happening in the world. That's a talent that evolution has happily gifted us all with. And it's about sort of developing hypotheses, developing ideas about the universe. And what you'll find is if you take pick one of our projects, I know, like Penguin Watch, for example, or Snapshot Serengeti, which is looking at beautiful pictures which are captured by motion-sensitive cameras in the Serengeti National Park. If you take part in Snapshot Serengeti, you'll find that it doesn't take you too long to start spontaneously thinking of hypotheses. You might notice that the wildebeest turn, turn up uh, at dawn or dusk, or, or maybe they're only in images from particular sites, or maybe you only see them in places where the grass is flat. And those are all scientific questions, and they're exactly the kind of scientific questions that the Snapshot Serengeti team are trying to answer with the data. Uh, and so I think this is this, this is absolutely true. I think if you, you can all call yourself scientists um, with the investment of a few minutes uh, worth of, of clicking around and, and participation. That's really exciting. So what is it that you think drives you know tens of thousands of people to go on your website and classify galaxies or transcribe ship logs? I, I think it's partly, as I said, it's partly that people like to be helpful. So I think the sense that you've done something useful is very, very rewarding. I, I think that's certainly true. I, I think um, in some of the projects, many of the projects, maybe there's a sort of attraction of uh, the idea. Um, planet Hunters advertises itself by saying you could discover a planet. And that's kind of exciting to add to your day, I think, even if the odds are, are pretty long. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think sometimes the images are beautiful. I got very excited about a project called Plankton Portal, which was using these amazing pictures that were taken. They were sort of shadow photographs of, of plankton uh, off the coast of Florida. And th these things have the most intricate and amazing shapes. Um, plus, the science team told me that in there somewhere, there were plankton that were shaped like the alien from Alien. And I was desperate <laughs> to try and find those. But I, I, I never quite found that that particular type but I found the shapes of that rather beautiful and so I had a great time exploring um people have all sorts of of motivations um for coming and, and trying it but I would say to your listeners just just come and give a give a project a go pick one at random and you might be surprised by what you become interested in uh certainly I had no interest in plankton before I started participating in in these projects and I think um there's there's a lesson there for those of us who talk about science. I think we're often guilty of assuming that we know what people want to be interested in. Um, you know, I'm much more likely to get a, a science story, a physics story onto television if it's related in some way to your kitchen or to, you know, life, uh, everyday life. Whereas actually, I think people could be surprised. I mean, your readers and listeners will know this, of course, but people can be surprised that you find yourself reading or thinking about black holes one day or plankton or penguin behavior the next uh and i think zooniverse is a a, a way of kick-starting your curiosity uh and giving yourself a, a a lot more uh richness in in what you can be interested in in the world and it's not just science either is it it's broadened a bit so i saw on your website there's some historical um yes thing. yeah we ended up with a historical project partly by accident uh, really, and one of the first projects we did, which which still runs, is a project called Old Weather, and Old Weather was an attempt to help researchers at the Met Office who were trying to test, well, researchers all around the world who try and test the computers that they use to to predict climate over time, and the the way you test those things uh, is that you test that you can predict the past. If you can do a good job of predicting the past, where you know what the right answer was, then you know you can do a good job of predicting the future. But our record of weather in the past is pretty spotty, actually. Um, we don't have much data beyond further back than the start of the 20th century, particularly for places that aren't on the eastern coast of the US or in Western Europe. And so old weather, uh, the old weather team realized that there was data locked up in ship's logs uh, and so we started off trying to transcribe uh, most of the nine, most of the early 20th century Royal Naval logs, because it turns out every Royal Navy ship, every four hours, uh, records the uh, weather in great detail. But these are all in handwritten logs. So Old Weather was a project about transcribing these wind records, weather records, and uh, and so on. But actually, the volunteers got very interested in the notes that were in the margins of these logs. Uh, yes, they were happy to transcribe the weather, but you know there was a ship which recorded the fact that its entire chocolate ration had been lost overboard uh which captured people's imagination people started spotting the names of individual sailors or officers uh, in these logs and got interested in that and pretty quickly we found we were running a history project that did weather records on the side mm -hmm. uh, and so that inspired us and so we've now built several projects that look at we looked at the history of the first world war we have a collaboration with tate modern to look at artist records, and, and we're starting to do more of those things as well. Uh, there's data locked up, not just in images, 
but in text. And, and we'd like any researchers who, who think they can collaborate with a crowd to come and talk to us. Some of the projects that you have on your website, they sound like the sort of things that could be done certainly faster by computers. So there's artificial intelligence and machine learning that can start to recognize patterns. So if you have a Facebook account, then uh, it can quickly start spotting your face in people's photos, for example. So um, why would researchers choose to use human power over computer power? So that it's a really interesting example that you brought up there with Facebook. So Facebook's face recognition technology is excellent. Uh, and it's excellent because we all spent most of a decade labeling faces for Facebook uh, as we went through and sorted out our friends and clicked and said, yes, this is Luke and this is Amanda or, or whoever else. Um, so that illustrates that modern machine learning depends to a large extent on the size of the training set you can provide. So in many cases, our projects are from fields where there simply isn't a large enough training set. Um, maybe the projects might aim even at producing a training set so that machines can later on take on more of the work. Uh, you can see that a bit in the Snapshot Serengeti project that I mentioned earlier. Um, the researchers behind that project wanted to know about 50 different species of animal, and some are easy to find uh, and some are not. So uh, probably the easiest, I think, is the giraffe. Uh, everyone, down to a four-year-old and, and younger, knows what a giraffe looks like. Mm -hmm. They're pretty distinctive. And so I'm pleased to say that Zooniverse helped develop the world's best giraffe spotting algorithm. Uh, and now we can find the giraffes automatically, which is uh, exciting and, uh, as you can imagine, useful in everyday life. Uh, but they're also interested, at the other end of the scale, in small skunk-like things called zorillas. Uh, and I'd never heard of a Zorilla before we got involved in this project. But they appear in about one in every three or four million pictures. And so it's going to take an awfully long time before uh, we can build up a decent training set of Zorillas. And so we will need people to spot the rarer things. Um, another reason why you might work with people rather than with a computer is that people deal with surprise better. Um, an example is a project called Space Warps, where we were looking for distant galaxies whose light has been bent by passage through the nearby universe. And these galaxies are distorted um, and they're often magnified. So these gravitational lenses give you a really good chance to see the distant universe. So they're highly sought after by astronomers. We only know of about a thousand of them. So doing a training set is quite difficult. Um, and when we set the project up, all the examples we showed people were blue. They were these star-forming galaxies, so they're bright blue, and they appear as little blue arcs. And the first thing the volunteers found was a distant red ring, uh, which turned out to be this really interesting galaxy that we're seeing uh, as it was when the universe was just a couple of billion years old. So that's a really nice example. The astrophysics is interesting. But... A computer trained on blue arcs isn't going to be able to recognize that the red ring is worth looking at, whereas people made that jump intuitively. Um, so when you want to look for the unusual, when you look, want to look for the rare, when you want to look for the unexpected, you need to turn to citizen science. Now, actually, I think the future, and this is where the book ends up, um, is a collaboration between human and machine. So 12 years after we started Galaxy Zoo, if you go to Galaxy Zoo now, 
you can click a, a button that says enhanced. And what that will do is allow you to classify alongside a machine. So you still get an image of a galaxy. We still want to know what shape the galaxy is. We're working our way through the southern part of the sky, which we haven't been able to look at in this detail before. But the galaxies you'll see if you click that button are selected by a machine uh, to be the ones where it needs human help. And so we're using the machines to speed things up. Uh, and, and then getting human intuition in to help with the unusual or the odd or the interesting. And that works quite well because it means the machines do the boring bit of the work and we get to see the interesting or unusual galaxies. We've got to work in this sort of hybrid way. Uh, I'm involved in a project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is a terrible name. But this is a telescope that's being built in Chile that will... Um, Cover the, it's as big as the biggest telescopes we have today, but it's going to scan the whole sky every three nights. Um, and it's going to transmit an alert whenever it spots that something has changed. And we're arguing about it, but we think a conservative estimate is that the LSST project will spit out about 10 million alerts a night. And so if you want to filter those to find what you're expecting, well, you might use a machine. But if you want to sort through those to find the interesting, unusual stuff, we're going to need citizen scientists to look at some proportion of that data. Uh, we'll use the machines to get, get rid of the known stuff, and then we'll all need to muck in and help us help, help identify the really interesting and unusual stuff that's hidden in that data set. What would you say is the uh, most exciting discovery that has been made thanks to the help of the Zooniverse? That's like trying to pick my own, the you know, my favourite child or something. <laughs> um, I think the most fun uh, was something called Burajin Star or Tabby Star, it's sometimes known, or to our volunteers, this was the WTF Star for a while, <laughs> um, which we probably don't need to go into now. So this is a star that behaves like almost nothing else. So it was observed by NASA's Kepler Planet Hunting Telescope, uh, and it did nothing in particular for a long while. And then suddenly, for a, a period of a few hours, it got 20% fainter and then got brighter. And then it did nothing for about another year. And then it, for about a month, it blinked dramatically and repeatedly. Um, and no one understood what was going on with the star. We tried pretty much everything we could think of to see if we could come up with a prosaic explanation. We even got, to give you some idea of, of how far in the weeds we went, we got down to, I should have said this was spotted by our volunteers, and they helped. But between us, um, we got as far as checking which pixel on the camera each observation was made with because we were worried that it was just an artificial effect. It wasn't that. The star appeared completely normal. Um, people talked about whether there was a disk of dust, the kind of stuff you might form planets um, out of surrounding the star. Uh, but we ruled that out. Um, and we got, we got a little bit desperate. And in the paper, we said, well, maybe it's a, a stream of comets in orbit around the star. And each comet getting in front of the star would cause a dip. Um, Turns out that this would be the biggest comet ever discovered, and it would have had to have um, disintegrated just as we started observing, which is <laughs> one too many coincidences for my taste. Um, and then a group of astronomers called, uh, led by Jason Wright in the States published a paper suggesting that this thing might be surrounded by an alien megastructure. So the idea is that if you have an alien civilization constructing space-based solar panels and those panels got in the way of the star, then you'd see exactly this. So for a little while, 
we were fielding questions about whether our volunteers had found aliens or not. Um, we think we've managed to rule that out, but the star's still a mystery. It's uh, not only it's undergone more of these dramatic blinks since, um, and it also seems to be uh, fading slowly over the course of the last hundred years. We found some historical observations. And so this is one star that's doing something that no other star we've ever observed is. Uh, and that, to me, is fascinating and interesting. And five years on, we're still arguing about and observing it and trying to work out what, what is happening. But that's a really nice example of the kind of discovery we can make with citizen science. That's a bunch of volunteers led by a guy called Daryl LaCourse um, who were looking for planets, were distracted by the star that was doing something very different, that came up with their own ideas about it, that told us about it, that challenged astronomers to explain what they found and then completely confused us. Um, <laughs> and so that following that story and, and being part of that, that excitement has been, has, been, has been great. So I think that's probably my favourite. I'm a big fan of space and astronomy. Good. Um, so, so what projects um, are there on the Zooniverse at the minute that you would recommend that I get involved in? Well, Galaxy Zoo obviously is excellent. I think um, a project that's pretty close to my heart because I I too like space uh, <laughs> uh, is is a is a project called Planet Four. So um, one of my the great regrets in my life is that I grew up as a kid interested in astronomy and I was particularly interested in our solar system. Uh, and somewhere along the way, I got distracted and ended up working on galaxies and, and, and so on. But in my heart, I think I, I would love to have been a planetary scientist. Uh, and so Planet 4 is our Mars project. It uses uh, a NASA satellite called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has this enormous camera on the front that takes pictures that would show you, if there were such a thing, a coffee table on Mars. If you've seen or your listeners have seen the pictures where you can actually see the individual Mars rovers and their tracks on the surface, those are from MRO. Um, and we're looking with Planet 4 at a really interesting part of the planet. We're, we're looking at the um, polar regions where there are features that are called spiders. So this really is spiders on Mars. And these are <laughs> Are cracks in the ground that grow when um, in the spring, where what happens is the ice that's underneath the surface warms up, and then suddenly you get a geyser shooting up from the surface and disrupting the dust, and you're left with these cracks that look a bit like sort of very tenderly spiders. Um, no one had produced a catalogue of these, no one had systematically looked at them, and that's what Planet 4 is doing. We're discovering really interesting things about how Mars changes from year to year and from season to season. So I think it's a really nice way to, to think about Mars as a planet. And because we're working closely with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter team, we've even, based on discoveries that people have made, retargeted the spacecraft to take new pictures. So if you want See, for anyone interested in space, the idea that something you do on a website might cause NASA to take a picture of something around Mars is, I think, really exciting. So I've, I've been participating in that project myself as a volunteer because I'd quite like to, to go and prod MRO and, and see if I can get my own picture from Mars back. Great. I will check that out. Thank you very much. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let me know if you find anything and we'll, we'll call NASA together. That was Chris Lintot talking about citizen science in the Zooniverse project. His book, The Crowd and the Cosmos, is out now. For even more fascinating science, why not check out the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine? 
It's packed full of features, news and interviews to help you make sense of the world around you. In the December issue, we find out why we are heading back to Venus, Earth's toxic twin, and ask what would happen if robots took our jobs. We also meet the physicists searching for a theory of everything. There is, of course, much more inside, but if you can't wait to get hold of a copy, then check out our many, many previous science-focused podcast episodes. They are all well worth a listen, and we'd love to know what you think with a review or a comment. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.